Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. This is the last question, okay? 68-year-old man was intubated four days ago, endotracheally intubated four days ago for respiratory failure due to pneumonia. All right. So there was a 7.5 ET tube was inserted during a difficult intubation. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the patient remains on the ventilator and has had intermittent agitation despite doing sedation and analgesia. Today, <clears throat> a spontaneous cuff leak is audible. So the respiratory therapist has inflated the cuff twice earlier today. And of course, it resulted temporarily in elimination of the leak. And then there was this concern was raised about, hey, maybe the balloon surrounding the ET tube was uh, torn. So they got chest x-ray to see where you are. And there is a chest x-ray. And, you know, I would say for time's sake, I'm not going to make you scrutinize it. And this is classic x-ray. There's so many lines and ECG wires and central line. But where is that ET tube? I think it's going to be right here with the arrow. So there's the ET tube. And in and, and class, learners, is the ET tube in a good position? No, probably not, right? I think if you have to memorize it out, we want the ET tube to be what? Right, two to five centimeters above the carina. If you're in rounds with me, if you ask me what anatomical structure do I use to see if the ET tube is at the right area, I know many of you are going to yell out clavicles, clavicles. But the answer for me at least is, you know, the clavicles tend to move. Why? Because if you're a lordotic, that it kind of rotates a little bit. But you know what really doesn't move is the aortic knob. And I like to use the aortic knob for me to be kind of where I like to see the tip of the ET tube. But regardless, I mean, this ET tube is going to be what? High. Um, which is the best approach in managing this very high ET tube. So do you want to add air to the ET tube cuff and control the agitation a little more effectively? So, you know, nail this patient with more what? Propofol, crank up the what? The Presidex. Okay, let's add some more Versed or what is probably the most common thing my fellows have been ordering all the time for sedation? Probably ketamine. I'm just going to choke a little bit. <clears throat> don't mind me. I don't know if you guys are the same way that you've been using a lot more ketamine now. They're always trying to convince me. Dr. Raj or hypotensive, you know, let's use some ketamine instead. And next thing you know, they have like three drips going on. Okay. So um, add air, control the agitation. Uh, B, deflate the ET tube. Oh, and just advance it, a little blinded, all right. Uh, C, exchange the ET tube for a new ET tube with an intact cuff, oh, using something called an airway exchange catheter. You know, probably my fellows would pick this, they haven't been certified in it, just to get some practice, you know. <laughs> um, or D, examine the ET tube and the airway with a flexible bronch, and nowadays we have all these portable bronchs in the ICU, and then with the bronchoscope in the ET tube, you can advance the ET tube over the scope. I mean, these are all tempting, and I'm sure in your practice, everyone's gonna pick something different. I know someone out there is gonna pick B. Just push it in, you know? But for, <laughs> but for the board exams, what's gonna be the right answer? Can you yell it out? 
Yeah, it's going to be D, right? You want to be safe. You want to put the scope in there. Look at the airway and kind of slide ET tube over the scope or use a new ET tube and advance it over there. So in this case, cuff leak, how common is that? You know what I mean? I put a manometer right here, which, you know, if you want to check exactly how much pressure is going to be um, uh, uh, in the cuff, and this is going to be your pilot balloon over here. And of course, you know, I took a little picture of here about using that flexible bronchoscope, really examining the airway and, you know, doing that fiber optic intubation with it. Um, so when we talk about this question, very, very common, you know what I mean? Many as 10% of intracheal intubated patients develop air loss around the ET tube, you know, and sometimes you can hear it, you know what I mean? And I put a little picture of the ET tubes that we use and right here at the end of it, there's this thing called the Murphy's eye. And so actually, you know, one of my first years asked me, hey, I mean, why do we have the Murphy's eye? And that's a great question. So, you know, it's called the Murphy's eye, I mean, mainly because it's a protective thing that let's say the tip of the ET tube, the bevel actually gets occluded with mucus, tumor, or blood, whatever you're sucking out, you know what I mean? Then there's no way you can ventilate these patients. So as a protection, we have this Murphy's eye, which is gonna be through the side. So it's kind of a protective thing. So when we talk about the other answers on the, on the question, well, number one, there was something called using an airway exchange catheter. And I really wanted to talk about this for a second. So <clears throat> when we talk about an airway exchange catheter and doing the procedure, where what happens is, is you, take this long flexible tube and there's, it's called an airway exchange catheter. The other thing is a bougie and a bougie and an airway exchange catheter is not the same thing. What's the main difference is that an airway exchange catheter is hollow on the inside. So you could actually connect that to a ventilator and ventilate the patient using an airway exchange catheter. A bougie is just a bougie, you know what I mean? There's nothing, you can't ventilate the patient with it. But essentially what you're gonna do is put this catheter, you know, through the ET tube, take out the old ET tube and put a new one in. And for those of you who have done this before, I mean, is that pretty easy? At least for me, not. You gotta sedate the patient, maybe paralyze the patient. Sometimes it's actually more troublesome than just re-intubating the patient to begin with. But, you know I mean? It's not wrong to do it. You know, it's definitely wanted to mention that, but you know, in this case, the, the, nice, the safest right way to do things is to put the bronchoscope in there. So I wanted to mention that. Um, and of course, you know, positioning of the tube, you know, when we do look at x-rays in the morning, you know, one of my little pet peeves about ET tube is always going to be the hose follows the nose. So you want to look at the position of the patient. So if the patient's looking up, ET tube is going to be up. The hose follows the nose. If the patient's flex downward, then the ET tube will be falsely down. So you always want to think about rotation and the, and the position of the patient's neck. So with this being said, let me do one more. I know I said I wouldn't do it, but we're so close. Let me do one more, then we'll call the day. 25-year-old um, female is evaluated in the ER for increasing shortness of breath. After a bee sting, she feels lightheaded, describes a sense of swelling in her face, on exam, afebrile, hypotensive, tacky, tachypnic, super agitated, Diffuse wheezing is noted on lung auscultation, but no strider, no evidence of facial or tongue swelling, and there's no rash. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment? So this patient, classic, is going to be bee sting, and yeah, say it. She's in probably a distributive shock. Which one? Say it. 
anaphylaxis. So are they going to ask you anaphylactic shock on your critical care boards? Yes, it's life-threatening. They definitely will ask you this. So which of the following is the most appropriate treatment? So is it A, you want to intubate and ventilate, mechanically ventilate this patient? B, I am epi and give a little albuterol. C, IV diphenhydramine and some steroids. D, uh, intravenous epi, go for it. And while you're there in the vein, uh, methylprednisone, steroids, and give some diphenhydramine. So I love this question for the boards because, you know, sometimes, you know, the right answer is not what you see people doing. The right answer is what we don't do that often, you know what I mean? Or maybe opposite of what people are doing. So the answer here is going to be B. All this patient needs is some ion epi that you can give immediately. Time is of the essence. And why did I bring this up here is because people are gonna ask me, well, what about those steroids? What about the antihistamines? Why can't we give those to the patient? So let's talk about this. So when we talk about anaphylactic shock, you know what I mean? It's definitely, you're gonna think about IM or sub-Q, IM being the route to give it, give to these patients, you know? When we talk about antihistamines and steroids, I mean, the truth is they have not been shown to improve outcomes in anaphylaxis and they really are not going to work that well. You know I mean, let's be honest. You know what I mean? I mean, sure, someone could argue during our, our conversation, what about this bimodal delayed anaphylaxis? Sure, we could always argue about that. But in this acute setting for this vignette, for this patient right here, what's the thing you need to do? Yeah, it's I am epi. There's no questions asked. That's what's going to save this patient's life. And I mean it. So when we talk about Anaphylaxis in general, I mean, Sirius is downplaying, you know, the, you know, how anaphylaxis is life-threatening. You may die from it. Symptoms, you know, rash. If someone asked me, what is the most common organ affected when you have anaphylaxis? Skin. It's got to be the skin. You look for that rash. Of course, you can get throat swelling and low blood pressure. Causes insect, insect stings, foods, definitely medications. And, you know, when does it typically start? Well, I mean, it could be as quick as five minutes or immediately, sometimes a little delayed. And I mentioned already organs are going to be involved, skin, lungs, GI tract, cardiovascular. So when we talk about some of the pathophysiology, I'm kind of really summarizing it. Anaphylaxis is immunologic. You know, we talk about IgE bindings to the antigen that activates mast cells and basophils, releases of inflammatory mediators such as histamine. There's something called anaphylactoid, which we don't use that term anymore. So I want to be honest, we don't use the term anaphylactoid. Right here, the World Allergy Organization prefers the new name, which is non-immunologic anaphylaxis. All right, I want to make sure I say it, okay? And the big thing about this is that you're not using Ig. It's Ig independent. So terminology, anaphylactic shock. Already, these are individuals that have the low blood pressure, not responding to IV fluids. Biphasic, I mentioned there could be a second peak that, her, that happens sometimes, not as common. And we don't use the terminology anaphylactoid. It's non-immune anaphylaxis, but it's not an allergic reaction, but it's due to whatever it is, such as a contrast agent, directly um, degranulating mast cells, but not through IgE. So, you know, when you want to make the diagnosis, it's definitely a clinical diagnosis. You want to actually treat these patients in a very, very timely fashion. You know, you definitely want to look for the trigger if possible. You look for the clinical presentation. And of course, someone's going to say, well, what about blood tests? I mean, sure, if you can get 
tryptase and histamine. You're in the hospital, you have the blood vials there, it's not a problem. But most often they're not readily available. And when we talk about how should you give the epi, the quickest way to give it is always going to be IM as soon as the diagnosis is suspected and repeat it. You may repeat the IM epi in five minutes and 15 minutes if there's no response. In theory, people on beta blockers maybe not responsive to epi. On a board exam, they love glucagon, though not many people have glucagon available to them. And of course, the wrong way to give epi is the way it was given in Pulp Fiction. We don't want to give it directly into the heart. Um, so why we use epinephrine? It activates alpha-1, vasoconstricts. It could activate beta-1, so it increases the heart contraction. Activates beta-2, it could be a bronchol-what? Dilator. So that's why epi is going to be the drug of choice. You know, we mentioned uh, H1 and H2 blockers. You're not going to hurt the patient by giving, but there's just limited evidence. And it's not going to help the patient right away. Steroids are probably not going to hurt the patient, but they're just not going to work in the acute setting. You know, no downside in giving nebulized albuterol. And I put this here to be complete. Sometimes someone's going to convince me in the ICU and we have a refractory shock. Do you want to give methylene blue? And yes, everyone, that's the same methylene blue. That's the antidote for hemoglobinemia. Someone's going to ask me, how does it work? It inhibits nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is going to be a very potent vasodilator. So please don't answer this for the board exams, <laughs> just give IMFE. And what is gonna be really my take home message here is my bottom line point. And I'm just gonna read these because they're so important. You know, patients with anaphylaxis should be assessed and treated as rapidly as possible for respiratory and cardiac arrest and death could happen in what? Minutes. And that's why, give it IM, don't wait for the IV to get started. Anaphylaxis appears to be most responsive if you hit it in the early phase. That's why the minute like you're writing your note and you think the shock could even possibly anaphylaxis, you need to treat. And so, I mean, before, and if you could give the epi before shock has developed, that's when you have the better outcomes. And really, there are no absolute contraindications to give epinephrine. You know, and it is the treatment of choice for anaphylaxis. And even, and I put this in the last part here, even if they only have a few hives or some mild wheezing, on the boards, in clinical practice, give the epinephrine, give the epinephrine. So of course, for patients who are not profoundly hypotensive or in shock, yes, IM epi is just the quickest way to do it. Where do I give it? Mid outer thigh, not <laughs> intracardiac. So with that being said, I, you know, I actually told the people at, you know, the past machine, I wasn't gonna go till 5.30. My voice is gonna get tired, I'm gonna be pooped. But look at the time, everyone. It's 5.30. I really, really hope you enjoyed this. I try to give everything I had. I hope this helps for your board exams. And thank you very much. I hope you enjoy my books. Bye, everyone. Good luck. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.